Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, July 30th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer is always, anything that you see or hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a financial certified financial planner. I cannot give you financial advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, so this last week, and in particular, the last couple of days, we've had quite a few earnings, Q2 earnings reports from various companies that uh, I'm interested in. And uh, what we saw is two of the U.S. super majors, Exxon and Chevron, both reported record quarterly profits uh, today the highest profits they've ever had. And there's various reasons for that. Obviously the oil price, the refining margins they had, they're integrated oil companies. So they have refining uh, assets, chemical assets. So those things, uh, I didn't go into the earnings reports, but suffice to say that these are the headlines, right? And so highest oil and gas prices or higher oil and gas prices contributed, highest refining margins in years, increased production and aggressive cost control all contributed to the record-breaking profits at Exxon. Chevron also reported record-breaking profits, announcing an increase in share buybacks. The record earnings from the U.S. super majors add to similarly strong earnings from the European majors, each of which reported much higher profits as commodity prices rallied. I believe a couple of those actually had the highest quarterly profits they've had. And the Italian uh, super major Eni, Eni, or Eni, however you pronounce it, they uh, announced a bigger buyback. Um, and so this actually started trickling down into the companies that I follow in the actionable intelligence alert um, newsletter portfolio. And we had uh, outstanding results from a couple of the companies that reported uh, that we're holding. And so what we're seeing now is the effects of cost cutting, uh, you know, coming back from that depressionary lows of a couple of years from the pandemic lockdowns and these higher oil prices now translating into these higher cash flows. The one thing that you did not hear a lot about or see anything was anybody talk about going out and doing big major projects. Still more and more discussion around, especially with the small and mid cap companies up in Canada that we like as part of the, um, you know, under super undervalued oil and gas stocks. Uh, one of the ones I follow in the company or in the portfolio is well ahead of its debt payback. Um, it said that when it gets to a certain level, 75% of cash flow will go to share buybacks. And then as it lowers its debt even further, which is expected to happen in, uh, further out in 2023, 100% of free cash flow will be going to share buyback. So we're seeing more and more of these stories, right? And so you have to ask yourself, okay, um, the economy is weakening all around the world. And, you know, how, what's the band or how low will oil trade? And we're not really seeing it, right? I mean, oil rallied this week. Um, Brent was $110 a barrel. And I think for a while, WTI traded over $100 a barrel. I think it pulled back under it for this week. 
but these prices, you see the kind of cash flows that these prices are um, allowing for with these companies. So now you kind of understand why Buffett and Munger got involved with this. Um, now you understand what can happen, the leverage. So uh, we're also seeing it now starting to trickle into the oil field services. One of, one of the oil field services companies that I follow, that's a top, uh, top maker of offshore equipment uh, for very, you know, high pressure trees at the bottom subsea type situations. Uh, their order flows coming in, their back, their backlog is exploding. And so they're seeing sequential growth quarter from last quarter to, to this quarter and year over year is uh, starting to perform. So it's coming back, we're seeing it and it's just kind of playing out like we thought. Now, again, the economy is weakening, um, not, notwithstanding the uh, discussions of what a recession is, but you know, two quarters of negative growth is typically what a recession is. So what we're seeing, if you looked at like the Valero um, conference call, one of the, th the things that came out of that was they saw a dip in demand at the beginning of July, but it's come back. So they're, they're saying that demand is really not falling off. So we're seeing that, right? At least in the U.S. So um, I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm not sure we're going to see an oil price crash. Uh, you know, again, what is the lower band? We know what the higher band is, 130 currently right now, but what happens now is now we acknowledge that this potential for a global economic slowdown. And as we see monetary policy, possibly, you know, the Fed now saying they're not going to do forward guidance. They're going to go on data month to month. This is the beginning of the change that we were talking about in the sediment, right? Everybody was way over on one side of the canoe saying, we're going to have this depression. We're going to have a 2008. A lot of people were talking like that, right? If you get on some of these Twitter spaces, people were kind of freaking out. I, I mean, again, no one can know the future, but right now things may not be as bad as we think. And at some point the Fed's gonna have to, you know, what, what is, what, how far are they gonna go? You know, if you look at previous cycles, they don't raise rates as far as they say they're going to. Um, so we'll have to see, I guess long story short is, is that these were really good um, earnings, but I think there's still a lot of negative sediment out there around the oil price that it's not going to hold, that it's going to go down. But how far is it going to go down? We don't know. And so I think we're, you know, are we closer to the end of the rate hikes and the beginning of the rate, the new liquidity cycle, which will lower the dollar and put additional impetus behind a higher oil price? I don't know. I do know, I shouldn't say I know, my probabilities that I'm working off of are that we are going to see record high oil prices this decade. And so, the reason why, and, and, and this is going to mean, and these companies are not going to invest. They continue to just, you know, pay down debt. And, you know, the Walter Schloss, one of my heroes, value investor, you know, what are the, what are, there's only a few things you can do with excess cash flow, right? You can, or free cash flow, you can pay down debt, which they're doing. You can buy back shares, which a lot of them are doing. You can return money to shareholders via dividends. You can do these three things. These are good things. They increase the equity for the shareholder. They increase our uh, uh, our wealth, if you will. Uh, what we don't want to see is going out and building a bunch of projects, doing crazy acquisitions, this kind of nutty stuff. But I think eventually we'll get to that point, and that will be a signal that we're getting near the end of the of the uh, 
of the upcycle, but I think that's way off in the future. People are still gun shy. People are still holding to the mantra of shareholder returns, and that's what we're seeing. So why why are we going to to reiterate? Why are we going to continue to see this? You know, why do we think oil is going to go higher? Because it's just not been enough investment, global exploration and production investment by segment, U.S. billions. So you can see we kind of peaked in 2014. Here's the different components. You know, black is offshore deep water. This blue is shale, tight oil. This is oil sands. This is other onshore. So you can see all segments pretty much have um, been shrinking because of the things that we've talked about in the past. And so here's 2021, not much of an improvement, slightly better than 2020. I mean, we are really super underinvested. If you just want to look and say, well, what was the typical six or $700 billion a year that was being spent? Well, you know, we're short, you know, one, two, three, four, four, five, six, uh, anywhere from 600 billion to a trillion dollars uh, just, just here, if you take this. So um, that's just rough off, off the top of my head. So, you know, again, a lot of people think oil's going away. That's not true. I mean, coal was going away and we have a record amount of coal being, being used this year. Uh, the, it's just not, you know, maybe it will in the future, but I think for this cycle, we're looking good. And this, this is why, this is why oil prices will be going higher because the demand, uh, as we've said before, incrementally increases every year. You have depletion and you have in, insufficient investment to overcome those, uh, those headwinds. So I think eventually it will happen, but I think it will take time and a uh, elevated oil price for a lengthy period of time to, to incentivize people to take the risk. I mean, you'd be putting your job on the hand if you're the first guy that goes out, right? Pioneers. What do they say about pioneers, right? The first one that goes in. The pioneers are the guys that gets the arrows in his back. So who's going to be that first CEO? You know, you're knocking down big money as one of these CEOs, stock options, and your board is comfortable with you just paying down debt, doing maintenance, and keeping the production flat at least, or s slow decline, and returning cash flow. That makes Wall Street analysts happy. That makes the shareholders happy. The board's happy. So why are you going to come in there and, Say we're going to spend ten, you know, ten billion dollars on a deep water project offshore in Namibia. I mean, it'll eventually happen, but I think it's way off, and that's why I think this this bull market, if you will, will be um, longer and of of uh, of a higher higher level. So, just wanted to touch on that Cameco Q2 earnings. I used to go in depth in this. I'm not going to do it anymore. I mean, you can read the conference call I'll, uh, notes or the entire transcript. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, just wanted to point out what they said there. This is from their slide presentation. Uran uranium market fundamentals, best ever. You know, uh, Geitzel has been in that business for 40 years. So they're saying this is the best market ever. So you can go, go and read it. There's a lot of discussion there, technical discussion about um, enrichment and things like this. To me, that's getting too far into the weeds. I don't need to get that far into the weeds. Um, as you, This is a secular trend. Um, you can see right here, uh, risk is shifting, they're saying, from producers to uranium customers. 
durable demand, decarbonization, electrification, energy security, which is a big thing now after this, uh, what we're seeing in Europe and other places around the world, ESG focus, uh, traditional demand improving, and then non-traditional demand coming down the line. And then of course, demand from financial investors driven by intrinsic value of clean energy. And so, you know, here's uncertain supply, low prices cause supply curtailment, end of reserve life for mines that are uh, running, lack of investment in supply. We keep hearing this again, the resource market, right? These are extractive industries, lack of investment in supply. Uh, COVID and global supply chain challenges and on and on. So you can read the um, transcript. Um, they go into what they're doing as far as bringing MacArthur River and Key Lake back online and all this. Like I said, that's that's a little bit too far needs for me. But overall, you know, we got into this thing a long time ago, so I feel comfortable just riding the uh, wave. We got a long way to go here, I think, and uh, you know, but uh, I think it's worth you know keeping the keeping a finger on the pulse. Again, this is one of the only you know two companies that's investable uh the other one being kaz Prom. so you know if you're in the juniors you know there was a merger this week i think or i think denison made an offer for uec or something like this I, you know I, I just don't follow it because i'm a generalist okay and so if you want to speculate um like i've said before Unless you're going to get into the weeds, you know, I, I, I think you should get like a newsletter like um, Justin Hume puts out. He just focuses on uranium. That's all he talk, That's all he focuses on. So you're going to get more in-depth information. Um, you know, I tell people at this point in the cycle, your best bet's probably just buying the um, Sprott Trust, investing directly in the metal, uh, in the in in uranium. And you'll note that the uh, discount is closed fairly, you know, fairly quickly. You know, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, a couple of few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, it was blown out to like 15%. So you could have got a 15% discount to the net asset value just buying the Sprott entity. And that's closed now down to about like 3%. So there's opportunities, right? And you don't have to just swing for the fences. You know, we kind of talked about that analogy of Dave Kingman when I played Stratomatic baseball he was like a three three or four outcome guy right he would get a walk he'd strike out hit a home run or you know get hit by a pitch or something like that the guy did not hit for average so if you want to be that person uh i think you have to do some research you're going to get involved with these juniors you know what's the property who's the management because what we we have a lot more interest in uranium and you know, you can't just go out and what, what I what I see happening with a lot of guys is they just go out and they fall in love with, a, you know, these companies and they don't have any path to earnings. I mean, Cameco has earnings. They raise the dividend. It's a real company that produces cash flow. Uh, you're not going to have a 10,000% return there. And I think that's what people are doing. They're not, in many cases, I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. If this, if this is what you want to do, you know, I'll be with you. But uh, um. I think for the average person, why not just buy the ETF, just buy the North Shore, you know, URNM or what I think Sprott took it over, whatever it's called now. And, you know, just dollar cost average into that. That's probably your best. But same thing with like, I tell people like in oil field services, just dollar cost average into the ETF. Unless you want to really get into the weeds, 
and do the work. And most people don't have the time or really the skill set to do that. So, you know, just catching the overall trend and riding it, you know, is sufficient to create above market returns. So that, that's, that's some, you know, advice that I've made a couple of times. Some people don't like that, but, you know, you know like I said, you know, if, if that's your game and you try to find that 10 or 50 bagger, you know, guys are going to do it and, but you know, the average person probably isn't. And so, or buy a basket of these things and then just keep your finger on the pulse. I look at them a lot more than juniors that don't produce anything as more of like long-term leaps options. Right. And uh, you have to buy them when they're really cheap and it gives you a lot of uh, cushion around the volatility. So anyway, that's my view. So this is another slide. Cameco's business is improving. Uh, transitioning to tier one run rate. They go into this in the call in the transcript. You can read it. Expect improving margins and cash flows, more tier one production, fewer spot purchases, ability to pull forward long-term purchases. They're talking about the volumes of long-term contracts are signing. So it's happening. That's really what's going to drive the market is utilities come back uh, and have to come back. So, um, you know, Enviable balance sheet, position to self-manage risk, opportunities to investment in nuclear fuel chain, 50% increase to the dividend. And this is a real company, right? So um, like I said, for the average person that wants to be an investor, I don't know why you just don't buy a market-weighted ETF and you're going to get a lot of Cameco, you're going to get a lot of Kaz Adam Prom, you're going to get a lot of Yellow Cake and a lot of the, uh, the, the, the Sprott Trust. And so that's pretty much going, you know, and then you hold that thing until, you know, we get to near the top of this thing and bail out and you're going to have tremendously beaten the market. I guarantee it. So like I said, the problem with the juniors is, is that most of them will never produce any uranium, but they will continue to issue shares to keep the lights on. So you have to be careful that if it's going to, if the uranium bull market happens in the next six months or a year, that's fine. I mean, the one that you're going to cash out, the real run, you know, I'm talking about the the, the blow off top. But uh, if you don't get that, then you're going to get caught up in dilution. So, again, you know, we're not macro economists here, but we do like to look at some of this stuff. Why? Because we have this view. I have a view. The uh, holistic view of things, probabilities that the economy's in a recession and the recession will get worse. Again, Fed will raise rates until they break something, whether it's the market, the emerging, emerging you know, the stock market, the emerging markets, some place in the debt cycle. I mean, it's higher dollars putting a lot of strain on emerging markets that have dollar debts or emerging markets that need to import commodities that are dollar, that, that are priced in dollars. So that's pretty on the scope of going into this, but, uh, it's kind of the inner market relationships between interest rates and currencies. But nevertheless, here's a chart going back to 93 uh, new single family homes sold. You can see, I mean, this is 2022. This thing's collapsing. This is what I found interesting. This goes back to 93 also. This is the University of Michigan. Is this a good time to buy a house uh, survey? And this thing's at like, you know, 30 year lows. So it's not a good time to buy a house, evidently, according to this survey. So who's, you know, housing, we, we've talked about this, you know, um, repossessions of, 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 of automobiles are increasing. People are getting to the end of the line of the free money that they have or their savings, 
And, um, you know, because we're a consumer economy, housing has such big, tremendous um, impact. You know, if you buy, like I've said before, if you buy a new house, you got the new appliances in there and the new AC, all the materials, then you have to go to all these places and buy all this stuff to outfit the joint, you know, blinds, furniture, the whole shebang, right? You know, new big screen TV, pots and pans, everything. So um, people like to get new stuff and really outfit the joint when they get a new place. So it, it has ripple effects through everything else. So this is not positive. Um, and, you know, housing prices were, you know, they were overvalued just like every other asset just about. And uh, now we're going to see, you know, it doesn't look like, I don't know who they're surveying here, but uh, this, is, this is like, when I see these anomalies that are so far out of the norm, you have to take notice. That, that that's the point here. So something just to uh, put in, put into that column of negative things, you know, then when you have the administration and the government, I don't know, I don't know why anybody believes anything that the government or the media says anymore. So now we're, you know, we're redefining what the historic, you know, view of a recession was, uh, and watching that press secretary stand up there. I mean, somebody put some pretty good memes on Twitter, um, about that. So I, I, you know, I just don't, uh, you know, we'll have to see. The point is, is I think that we're closer to the end of the rate raising cycle than we are at the beginning of the rate raising cycle. And I think that when that change happens, you know, I think a lot of people now are starting to realize that that's why I think we're seeing these relief rallies. But, uh, like I said, I think that, you know, it still takes time. It's not going to be like, well, you're going to start seeing the slow transition of the language and the view of the Fed because they're not, they're going to start seeing some of this stuff too. Okay. And people talk about employment. Some of these things kind of crack me up employment. Some of these things are lagging indicators, right? They show up later uh, after the economy's already, you know, the, once the demand goes away, it takes time for that to filter back. And then people at the company saying uh, our orders are dropping off or our business is going down. We have to let go of these temps. We start with the temporary employees, then whatever. Then they start, you know, laying people off. So it takes time, right, to filter back. So, you know, saying that we have this low unemployment rate that's kind of rigged anyways because labor participation is very low. Again, I'm getting into the weeds here, which I don't really want to do. But long story short, uh, this is not positive. And I think, you know, when the Fed sees these things, uh, this is why, you know, I think that, well, as I've said before, um, I think the next meeting is in September. And by then we may see inflation actually headline inflation will have, you know, peaked. And that will be the, you know, this is what the Fed wants to see so they can start backing off on the, uh, you know, inflation fighting language, which I think uh, will be positive for uh you know, resource markets. One of the things to watch is gold and silver. Uh, and I think even the cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, not all the not all the crappy coins, but something like Bitcoin, these things will sniff out because they're driven by liquidity. Even like the uranium market, some of these areas of the market that really respond to liquidity, they'll start reacting well before the Fed actually um, shifts its um uh, policy. So one of the things I'm doing, looking forward to that, even into 2023, is I'm putting together an, a pretty decent list of junior gold stock exploration stocks, which have been completely nuked. You know, some of these things are down, 10, you know, 90%. There's other areas of the market that are, have been, are down 90 or 95% that I think 
will respond to a new uh, liquidity cycle. So uh, I'll be putting that type of stuff out more in the newsletter. I might just put a basket of five or 10 junior gold stocks together and just you know, an equal amount in each one and just sit on it. And that thing could, I think, do fairly well once the uh, Fed changes its view, but we'll see. Again, the stock market's still overvalued. If you, uh, this is Warren Buffett's, you know, they call it the Buffett indicator, corporate equities to GDP, stock still overvalued. You see that, uh, you see that, um, you know, we topped out uh, at 214% and we're at 197. So we haven't come down that far. We need to get down into this 125 area between 100 and 150% of GDP. And that becomes more um, more of a longer term, uh, if you will. Uh, and that th this is remember this is all during a rate rate a cycle when when rates were coming down. That's why you saw this tremendous bull markets, right? Uh, because of the uh, interest rates over time coming down, and that uh, was allowed allowed more money to go into the stock market and have multiples increase. Obviously you had pullbacks and stuff, but regardless, you know, this is any kind of moonshot, you're going to see, you know, a big, a big pullback. And that doesn't mean all stocks will go down. I, th I think that the, as I said before, this decade will be the decade of value stocks. Um, this will be the decade of uh, resource and commodity stocks with volatility, which we've seen, if you've been following along, if you've been watching the channel, if you've been watching the markets, you see the volatility, but you see that opportunity that's created by that volatility. And so if you understand, I think, the cyclicality, if you understand the, the need for these resources and the, and the thesis around the massive underinvestment across the spectrum, then I think you can use that volatility to your advantage. And when somebody sells because they don't really know what's going on, or they're a tourist, or they're hot money, and they sell something down, or a liquidity you know event comes around which forces these stocks down further than probably makes sense, then you have the ability to step in and buy these things cheap because you actually know what's going on. So that's where I think opportunity is. So I know people might be getting sick of me picking on uh, the Germans, but uh, I just can't help myself on some of these things. Why? It's one of the largest economies in the world, so it matters what happens there. It matters what happens at that very large chemical plant that BASF owns that they may have to furlough, right? Put on care and maintenance because they can't afford the gas because of the supply chain and what they supply to other people. You know, raw taking natural gas and creating, you know, intermediate products in a manufacturing process is is a big deal and uh this particular person mr habeck who's the german economy minister he doesn't really understand i think what's going on um these people like i said they're they're technocrats they've never actually run anything they uh, like a business or anything they just know what they learn in books and then you slather that with a bunch of gravy of ideology and it just becomes a big big mess. So he's talking about here, um, he's a little bit upset because, you know, he feels that the Russians are making excuses for not raising the, um, or for lowering the amount of gas coming to Germany on Nord Stream 1. 
he doesn't think it's fair. So here's what he has to say. He's talking about the Russians here. They don't even have the guts to say, we are waging an economic war with you. Instead, they tell farcical stories about these turbines, which are simply not true. This, the reason I put this on here is not to make fun of this guy. The reason I put this on here is not to uh, bag on the Greens or whatever, the government in Germany. The reason I put this on here is so that you understand why you're going to have the economic dislocation, why you're going to be cold this winter, why manufacturing is going down. It doesn't matter. You know, you this is a perfect example of not being a pragmatic leader, okay? The arrogance of the West, this is what people in the East and the South have been talking about, if you've been listening. Most people don't listen to what other people say in a negotiation, their spouse, whatever, okay? Uh, people in Europe, and especially in the U.S., I'm talking about the ruling class, think that the rest of the world's here to kowtow to them. Um, you were told for two decades not to expand NATO east. You did it. You didn't think that the Russians would push back. You wedded yourself to Russian resources, especially energy resources and pipeline gas in particular. And then when you your foreign policy uh, was not meshed with your economic policy, the Russians, whether it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter, as I've said before, this is what applies to investment. This is a great lesson. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. It only matters what's happening and who can is going to come out on top of this thing. They, they put the sanctions on. They put the worst sanctions on. They confiscated a sovereign nation's wealth, central bank uh, assets, which has never happened before. It didn't even happen during World War II to Nazi Germany. Okay? And now... He doesn't think it's fair. They don't have the guts. What does that mean? This is your leadership. This is why you're not going to get out of this with extreme pain, without extreme amount of pain. These people are not pragmatic. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants John, what would you do? What would I do? Say this government fell and I was swept into power in Germany. Uh, well, I would get in front of the people and tell them, you know, this is unfortunate what was happened. We had incompetent people here before us. Now we're going to have real leadership. We're going to cut a deal. We're going to tell Ukraine, we're going to tell the United States to piss off, number one. We're going to have a summit with, immediately get on the phone with Macron. Then we're going to tell Zelensky, it's over, cut a deal. We're, we're co come to Berlin, we're, cutting a we're telling you the deal that you're going to cut. You're going to lose territory and that's it. Okay, we got to salvage something out of this. Then we're going to simultaneously tell talk to the Russians. We're going to come up with a deal. And then we're going to, you know, in conjunction with that, we're going to get not only Nord Stream 2 going again, we're going to, or Nord Stream 1 going to full 100%, we're going to get Nord Stream 2 turned on. And I don't care what the U.S. says. That's what they should do. Not only that, we're not only going to do that, we're going to salvage the last three reactors that are supposed to get shut down in December, and we're going to bring the three that were recently shut down back online. And then we're going to commit to nuclear as base load in this country. And in, in the, and in, in, the, in the European Union. That's what I would do. And people could say, well, that's rewarding aggression. Hey, look, you don't have a choice because of decisions that were made before you. And this isn't working. And whining like this isn't going to solve anything.
you're in an economic war, Mr. Hobbit, whether you like it or not. You, may, you, ve you very well may find yourself in a hot war before this is all over with. So my suggestion would be, if you want to save your job, if you want to go down as in history as a leader and being pragmatic, then you should step up. And if you're voted out of office be because of it, then that's the way it should be. But this isn't really going to work. And what the Russians are going to do is just going to slowly, this is exactly what I th thought would happen. They'll use any excuse so it doesn't, you know, me, I'm hardcore. I would have flipped the switch the day they confiscated the central bank assets of the Russian central bank. But actually, that was probably not a smart thing to do. And so what we're seeing is the smart thing. Slowly ratchet it down over time. Use these excuses. He's very right. Very, I don't know what's really going on with these turbines. I know they're necessary, and the, and the Russians may be using this as an ploy and excuse, but it doesn't matter. You're not controlling, you're not controlling that, Mr. Havik. And so you can't afford to have these fertilizer plants. So this is what we're seeing, right? We're seeing fertilizer plants in the EU shut down, and we have sanctions against Russia and Belarusia for their fertilizer exports. And oh, by the way, we've quietly reversed those or some of those to, to allow Russian exports. So what are we doing here? You know, this is all about, you know, sunk cost theory and things like that. Well, we went all the way in on this. We got way over our skis and excited because the United States got us all jazzed up on this. Plus the whole mentality of the West with the virtue signaling that's been going on uh, about, you know, whatever issue comes across, you know, every other month, whatever the du jour thing to care about comes across. And this is what's the thing to care about, to be one of the cool kids. And the whole thing's blown up in their face like a novelty scar. And so this is what you get. So I know that's a rant, but it makes, if they don't get this solved, it, you know, eventually they're going to have things imposed on them, whether they like it or not. This idea we're just going they're just going to replace, you know, are they willing to risk the dissolution of the European Union? Because it's very possible that could happen. As I've said before, people are not going to stand for their living standards to collapse. And once they sober up to this and they start feeling the pain, layoffs, standard of living decreasing, jobs going away, somebody's going to have to wear it. And, you know, you can't do any, if you're a voter, in one of these democracies, so-called democracies, you can't do anything to Mr. Putin, but you can vote against this person. You can vote against the Democrats in the November congressional election. Now, I don't believe, you know, that we can get into whether that me means anything or anything, but that's way to lash out. That's who's going to get blamed because you can't do anything to the other party in Russia. So anyway, uh, it makes, it's a big deal for us because... You know, natural gas here in the U.S. is $8.30. And so what does that mean? I mean, the ridiculousness of this whole policy, it's funny now, people were lamenting the other day, um, well, they have to turn their coal plants back on. That was their, that's part of their plan here uh, to uh, turn the coal plants on temporarily. Now, that because of the, <laughs> this is what happens, right? Murphy's Law kicks in. Now, because of drought conditions in certain areas of Germany, the river levels are low, so you can't fill the coal barges all the way up. So now they're having to truck the coal. I mean, just you just can't make it up. But this is what happens, right? This is what happens when you don't have a real plan, when everything's 
lathered and slathered in ideology and you're an ideologue instead of being a pragmatic leader that's looking out for the best interests of your country. And the world sorely needs those type of people. And so uh, this has been going around on the internet. I also saw like a guy, uh, guys that I know in Germany, like shovel stocks and stuff. I think he did a, uh, I can't read German, but uh, maybe you can reach out to me and I can get him on for a short call and we can talk about this. But anyways, there's a, this technical inspection association in Germany uh, has said that, um, well, here's, here's what they said. Germany could restart three more nuclear power plants in addition to the three that are still in operation within a few months or weeks, says the chief of the Technical Inspection Association. So basically, not continuing the running of the three that are operating and bringing the other three on, it's nothing around a safety or technical issue. It's a political decision. It's a political decision. Because I've said before, the Green Party was basically founded one of its major tenets and appeals was that they were anti-nuclear power. You remember, you can you know look at the little atom. It's red. They used to have the signs atom craft, nine donke, which means nuclear power. No, thank you. That was the major thing through the 70s, the 80s, you know. And so to reverse that, it's almost asking like asking a Baptist to convert to Catholicism. It's just not going to happen. Okay, it's just an ideolo ideological um, stumbling block that they may not be able to get over, even if the economy would benefit, even if it would relieve pressure with lack of electricity uh, or the need to burn coal. That's how wedded some of these people are to these ideologies. So um, I haven't done enough reading on this, but what I understand is that there's no really nothing stopping them technically, uh, but uh, it's a political decision. And, you know, here's German one year forward electricity rates. I mean, typically they were down, like, you know, the end of last, well, before this crisis started, which the crisis was already, was already a crisis last year to a certain extent, but this has been exacerbated by the war. But, you know, $50 a megawatt was, you know, the, now we're up to 350, 400, going to 400. I mean, this is, somebody needs to do something, right? I mean, it's time to find an off-ramp. But uh, as of now, I'm not seeing it. And so this little bed bug, who I can't stand, has now come out again because we're not gonna let any crisis go to waste, right? World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, World Economic Forum calls to end wasteful private car ownership. The globalist elites say too many people own private vehicles for the planet's good. Now, these people pretty much only have sway in, in Europe and, well, Western Europe and in the Anglo sphere, Canada, the US, Australia, New Zealand. Nobody cares about these people or is going to follow anything they say. This is another problem that people don't understand what's really happening in the world, okay? Why the global south and the global east, you know, or Asia, they're not going to follow this in India or Indonesia or Russia or China. They may, you know, it's that's over with. Those people now have reached sufficient levels of economic prosperity and wealth where they don't need to kowtow to the West, okay? They're not going to limit 
their development, limit their uh, economies for stupid stuff like this, for this idiot. And that's what people don't understand. It's going to fail. But people in the West are going to suffer, obviously, because they're going to be subjected to this nonsense. You know, um, we saw the situation in the Netherlands with the 30% reduction in nitrogen fertilizers or whatever. And you, you know, you're, you may or may not be seeing it. You're not seeing it on the mainstream media. Uh, but you're seeing, you know, the, the farmers revolting. They're being supported by farmers in other countries in the EU. And now guess what? This is why this stuff is orchestrated in the West. Justin Trudeau is rolling it out in Canada now. Okay. And so people, you know, this is not, disinflationary this is not conducive to producing enough food for the world but this these people you know these people are cartoony or caricatures they don't they are on the wrong side of history because they are on the in the declining west the people in the east are not that's what part of this whole thing's about guys what's going on in the world okay it's a struggle for supremacy of the eurasian landmass and the anglo-saxon world is that was being run. I mean, if you think, if you're living in Western Europe and you think you're calling the plays, you're not. People in Washington and London are calling the plays. And the end of that Anglo-Saxon uh, global hegemony is they're, they're losing their grip. And so this guy is on that side. Yeah, they'll implement this stuff in France and in Canada and in the Netherlands eventually, and the people will suffer. And eventually, you know, uh, I'm hopeful that the people will rise up and, oh, and throw these people out. You know, I saw the person that's running for the premiership, I think, in Alberta. I can't remember her name, but she's, well, she said it at least, but who knows? But, you know, I think you're going to see more of this type of sentiment that no one in her government, if she's elected, is going to be able to have any ties to these people. So who is Justin Trudeau? I mean, look at the, look at all of like, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, these places, which if you drive through, there's huge fields of canola, wheat, all these things, sunflowers, okay, that require a tremendous amount of inputs, chemical inputs. So you're going to, you already saw what happened in Sri Lanka. You already saw, see what happens. You don't need to be an agronomist to know that if you restrict the inputs into row crop farming, that you're going to have lower yields. So you got to ask yourself what's really going on here. But I can assure you that the global elites will not, they'll still be driving around in vehicles. They'll still be flying around. Okay. So if these people were walking around in sackcloth or, you know, hemp clothes with sandals and growing their own food, then that would be a different story. Well, what these people want to do is they want to create a um, feudal system where these technocrats like themselves are on top, controlling all the wealth, controlling everything, having central bank digital currencies, controlling the food supply, controlling everything so they can control the serfs. That's what they want. And uh, I don't think uh, everybody else in the world's, you know, outside of their ballywick of their insane asylums of Western Europe and the Anglosphere are down with that. But we'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. So... Here's an example, like Japan is being pragmatic. They don't really have a choice, right? Because they import 100% of their energy for all intents and purposes. Um, and LNG prices are through the roof. And so they need to buy coal. And so what's it say? Mining giant Glencore strikes one of the 
one of Japan's most expensive ever coal deals. Nippon Steel will buy coal at $375 per ton through March 2023. Coal prices are surging as the world shuns Russian shipments. So you got to get the coal somewhere, right? Short here, uh, Glencore, the mining and commodity trading giant, agreed to supply coal to a Japanese customer at one of the highest prices ever paid by the nation, threatening to further accelerate inflation. So what do I say? Imagine being bearish coal. Well, I mean, met coal is going to fluctuate based on what's going on with steel, but thermal coal, again, I mean, is making uh, highs also. We just saw recent earnings from thermal coal producers. They're going through the roof. Why? Because we've artificially restricted the supply. We've demonized it. Banks won't finance it. Insurance companies won't insure. Governments are against it. They won't permit. And so if you own an existing asset, you're grandfathered in, and yet the, you know, we've, we, we have burned a record amount of coal this year and we'll have a burn more, a record amount next year. You know, look at, for example, even in the United States, I mean, with natural gas at $8.30 an MCF, I mean, I think the, the, the transition point's like $4 or $3.50 an MCF. And then if you can fuel switch to coal, that's what power plants do. Now, obviously, all plants can't do that, but they will if they can because you're running a business. You know, what you don't understand is if they just burn that gas, they don't absorb the cost. There's provisions in the Public Utility Commission agreements that the utilities have made. You see, the utilities, after the Depression, or during the Depression, they had the Public Utility uh, Commission laws put into place. So you have a, you don't have 14 utilities with hundreds of wires going everywhere around your house. You have one utility, and the agreement is, the deal is basically, they provide they have a monopoly. They provide 100% of the electricity distribution in that area. Uh, and they agree to do that with certain, you know, reliability. And they're guaranteed a return. Okay. And part of that deal is they could go out and build a new power plant. They go build transmission lines, whatever. Uh, they get this approved by the Public Utilities Commission. And then they negotiate if it's going to be 11 or 12% return, something like this. But the issue is, is if fuel costs go up, they have pass-through provisions where that passes through the consumer. Most people don't know that. So they're stunned when these things happened. Or if you have a unregulated market, like most of Texas, people got burned during that freeze because they go on the power to choose website and they don't understand the difference between, they see a rate that's real low, but they don't understand it's just somebody buying off the spot market or, and what happened instead of getting a fixed cost, a fixed cost for your power is higher, but it protects you from that type of situation. So we had people down here with 10 and $15,000 electric bills for the month of February when that thing happened a, a, you know, a couple of years ago. And so I think coal is going to be, again, we've talked about it before, especially like thermal coal, it's gonna be a tremendous um, opportunity. I mean, it's never going to be like a growth situation. People are never going to give its full due, kind of like they did cigarette companies. But again, they're just, you know, minting cash. It's like a cash register. It's kind of like that. I remember I was watching that movie Scarface and they were talking about, you know, when they did that like montage for like a couple minutes when his business was hitting on 16 cylinders, Tony Montana, or his original boss, Frank said, you know, the problem you're going to have is what to do with all the cash. And they were carrying it in duffel bags. That's kind of what's happening now in the oil 
EMP companies and with a lot of these coal companies. Again, they're paying down debt. They keep mining. Prices are high historically. And so cash flows are tremendous. So they pay down debt. And then after that, what do you do? You start buying back shares and dividends. You're not going to go out and build another coal mine. So this is, again, in my view, a tremendous opportunity until the zeitgeist changes, which is going to take an extreme amount of pain, which is starting to happen. When people finally wake up and say, this is stupid. You know, why don't we have pragmatic people? Why don't we have a plan? Why are we running this energy transition based on the election cycle every two and four years? So until that happens, uh, they're not going to let the lights go out because then you will have riots. You will have turmoil. So I want to finish up here. You know, this struck me. It's from Crescat Capital, like source Bloomberg. I don't know how they got this information about Chinese consumer confidence. So take this with a grain of salt. But, you know, this is the consumer confidence that's tracked all the way back to like 1996. Uh, if this is actually true, I mean, that's this is why you're seeing that trillion dollar package. That's why you're seeing um, the Chinese government create kind of like a bailout thing for real estate. To my mind, this is mostly around the people locking people in these giant prisons in these cities with 20 million people for zero COVID, uh, which is inexplicable because I don't think the Chinese are that stupid. But again, uh, you know, they must know that you can't achieve that with an upper respiratory virus that mutates. But maybe they don't. Uh, if somebody has an idea of why they're, you know, doing this. But anyways, this is a result. People get, you know, Consumer confidence is not going to be um, high when you're locked in your apartment. You can't get food. In many cases, people were jumping off of balconies, I saw, stuff like that. So um, what I'm getting at is this, too, will change. There will be a bounce back. We got the party congress, I think, in October, where Xi is going to, hopefully, in his mind, I guess, hopefully be crowned emperor for life. And then maybe I think they back down on the uh, maybe zero COVID thing and this isn't. This is another example of not having to uh, go all go into some ho super growth mode. This just needs to turn around and go back to semi, you know, less bad. And why is it important? Well, China, for example, consumes fifty percent of the world's copper, and so getting them back in gear um, is going to be conducive, I think, to the next leg higher in the copper price. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for the, um, you know, thank you for the support. Again, I just want to reemphasize the volatility. You saw it, you know, everybody a couple weeks ago, you know, oil was, got, was getting smashed uh, and people were like, I'm selling, I'm getting out. You know, uh, it, it's hard to hold. We, we changed some of the EMP companies in the portfolio to holds. And now you saw this bounce back. And again, we're over 110. Now everybody's bullish, record profits. And this is what we were hope, hoping to see. So I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you for sure what's going to happen in the short term. But I do think that the lack of investment long term across the resource markets, not just in oil, uranium, copper, everything, basically everything uh, is going to lead to a... Um, uh, you know, long-term bull market, which I think is going to be punctuated with extreme bouts of volatility. 
which we said that if you have the weatherthal and can use make that your friend, I think you'll do tremendously well. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks.